0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Well, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Darian weltman swift and I'm co-founder of Article3.org, which is a nonprofit organization working to strengthen the human rights philanthropy ecosystem. It's my great pleasure to welcome all of you here today for this program to, on the fight to end child marriage. Uh, it's so wonderful to be featuring Princess Mabel van Orange from the Netherlands, and I know you're all in for a treat. Uh, thank you to the Commonwealth Club and to everyone joining us here today in person and online for this timely and important conversation. And now I'm delighted to welcome Princess Mabel van Orange to the Commonwealth Club and back to the Bay Area. Known as Princess to many... To those of us in the human rights community, she is known to us as Mabel. She is a fierce, tireless, and courageous champion for the the rights of women and girls around the globe. As a social entrepreneur and founder of, of Vow for Girls, she is leading a global movement to end child marriage. I mentioned that today's conversation is timely. This year marks the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's a milestone document that set out to establish that rights fundamental to being human, such as dignity and freedom, must be protected and advanced. These principles apply to girls, including the right to determine one's own future and love on their own terms. This is Mabel's mission, to ensure that these basic rights enshrined 75 years ago are accessible and applied evenly to all girls everywhere so that no girl is a bride. Mabel undoubtedly will not rest until all girls have such rights and become universally empowered with both voice and choice. I'm also very pleased to welcome our moderator for today, Randy Newcomb. Randy is a senior advisor of the Midiar Group, a diverse collection of entities and initiatives that strive to catalyze social impact globally. Randy is also co-founder of Humanity United, an organization dedicated to cultivating the conditions for enduring peace and freedom, with a focused portfolio created under Randy's leadership to eradicate modern-day slavery. Randy is immensely respected in the human rights, human trafficking, and philanthropy sectors. Given his background and experience, I can think of no one better to help guide this crucial conversation. Please join me. And welcoming to the Commonwealth Club stage, Princess Van Orange, in conversation with Randy Newcomb.
2: Thank you, Darian, and welcome, everybody, uh, to the second day of spring, which actually feels like the second day of winter. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a delight to be with you, the hearty few that uh, won't allow 70-mile winds and storms to keep us away from these kind of important conversations. So. Thank you for joining us today and for this really extraordinary opportunity to be in conversation with, I should say, my friend, uh, Mabel, and uh, who I will say has been an inspiration for me and for our work at the Omidyar Group and for the Omidyar family for years and years. So, Mabel, welcome to this conversation. Um, Mabel, as, as many of you will know, has dedicated her career to ending the practice of child marriage, as Darian was noting, and I wasn't aware that child marriage impacts 12 million girls annually, which is really extraordinary. So, Mabel, we're going to want to talk more about that. Her latest venture, as as Darian mentioned, is uh, with Vow for Girls, which we'll hear more about, which invests in efforts to support girls whose futures are at risk. During the last decade, Mabel has played a catalytic role in the global movement in child marriage, including the creation and growth of three entities, which are Girls Not Brides, uh, the Girls First Fund, and Vow for Girls. And so, actually, we're going to be having a conversation today. So that conversation is not just between Mabel and myself. I'm hoping that you will have questions, and we'll get to those questions as well as as those online, uh, that you'll use the chat box feature online, and we'll bring your questions forward for this, really what I think is an extraordinary conversation. So that's all of our housekeeping, Mabel. So we're we're, we're going to jump into this. And I, I, I always enjoy conversations with individuals like you because... I find your biography so interesting. And I, I know enough about you that uh, you've had a very, very interesting trajectory over the course of your life and have done extraordinary work. So I'm really interested in talking about what, what kind of brings you to this work. I, I know you well enough to know that there are moments where it would have been very easy for you to say no more. You know, I'm, I'm going in a different direction. Over the course of your life, You've consistently worked for causes related to conflict around failed states, now child marriage, for decades. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm curious if it what what brings you into that and what calls you to continue to do this kind of work.
0: <laughs> well, we start immediately, quite personally, obviously. <laughs> um, first of all, I would like to to thank the Commonwealth Club and and especially Darian for for. Um, for hosting this conversation and uh, and randy mentioned to a friend the fact that we are friends and and maybe it would be nice to to explain how we know each other because um we actually met about 15 years ago i think when i became the first ceo of an organization called the elders which is a group that nelson mandela created of former heads of state and uh People like Archbishop Desmond Tutu and, and Kofi Annan, the former Secretary General of the United Nations, and and they had come together to basically to promote peace and to to bring justice to the world. And Randy was was one of the the members of the Advisory Council, and that's where where we first met and became friends. And um, and it's so it's very nice to to do this conversation together. What has been driving me? Um, you know, it's so hard to know really what drives you, but I do think one of the things that that makes that I. Uh, I find it so hard to give up trying to make the world a better place is that I'm really upset about the fact that there is so much... The, the world can be so incredibly unfair that I first experienced that when I was was quite young. I grew up in an, in a middle-class family in the Netherlands and my father would travel to Latin America for his work and he would come back with stories about the poverty that he saw there in, in different countries in Latin America. And so at a very young age, it made me aware that the things that I was taking for granted, like going to school, having hospitals, all these things, that they were actually not normal in other parts of the world. It created that sense of injustice. Like, how can this be that just because I have the luck of being born in the Netherlands, that I have, have these opportunities and that and that girls and boys who are born elsewhere don't. And it made me determined to try to to fight that injustice. And so fast forward then, uh, I I ended up at the end of my studies at the United Nations doing an internship working... looking at the financing of peacekeeping operations. And this was the time when, in the early 90s when genocide was taking place in Bosnia. And, and again, there was this sense of like, how can this be? This is wrong. This is not fair. This is unjust. And so it made me decide that, that I wanted to become basically an activist and try, try to stand up and... and try to to help to, you know, to, to make sure that the human rights of people, regardless of where they're born, and the opportunities, regardless, again, of where people grow up, that, that they are available to all. And so that has kind of, for the last almost 30 years that I've been working, has really been driving me. And that's where then also the work around child marriage comes in. Because once you you know that there is a, such a big injustice, it's very hard, at least for me, to sit still and to to yeah, to stop.
2: Yeah, well, you, you actually reference, and I, w- I want to build off of our, our time together with the elders in those in those early years. With uh, you think about Archbishop Tutu, who was our first board chair for the Elders Organization Kofi Annan, and I think what what I found unique about being in relationship with both Archbishop Tutu and, and Kofi Annan was was kind of the level of moral clarity. Mm -hmm. And that there were certain there were certain human rights issues in the world that we needed to be extraordinarily clear about Mm -hmm. and that we could not tolerate. And I found in our conversations in the elders organization that this issue around child marriage was one of those where there's just a level of clarity. And what was your sense? You were the CEO in those times and during those years and i think you must have really been supporting the the elders just to be completely clear about the importance of of mitigating practices such as child marriage yeah.
0: well i i remember that that we came to the issue of child marriage in uh, because the elders at some point this was in 2009 I remember we had a meeting in Paris and the elders said look we have to work on the issue of gender equality the fact that that men and women girls and boys are still not equal is is one of the biggest injustices in the 21st century and it was president Carter one of the members of the elders who said look when we look at gender inequality what we really should look at is how religion and tradition which normally are forces for good in our lives, too often get misused in order to justify discrimination against girls and women. And he had experienced that in his own church. He had, he had changed churches because of that. And the elders spoke out about this through statement and through op-eds. And, and that really resonated and was very interesting. We, we got people from all over the world saying, thanks for speaking out. This is so true. I can't say this. I'm a woman. I experience the inequality every day. I can't say it. But now I can refer to what you guys have said. And so we realized we were onto something and we started looking at like, is there an example of religion and tradition being misused in order to, to discriminate against girls and women? And we then kind of came across the issue of child marriage, which at that time was getting very little attention globally. I mean, you would go to these big United Nations development conferences and and the ANGA week and all, all these big events. People wouldn't talk about it. And we then realized, as you were saying, Randy, that it is 12 million girls who get married every year. Now think about it. 12 million is an enormous amount. Basically, 12 million is a girl every three seconds. So that's a girl getting married. Another one. Another one. Another one. And it goes on and on and on. And not only is this obviously an enormously big problem, but the consequences are very, very big. Because these girls who get married, that's not like, oh, you know, like how we would think about marriages. We think about cake and beautiful dresses and festivities and dancing and family and friends and happy ever after. But for these girls, their day they get married is the day they have to leave school in most cases, if they were ever allowed to go to school. It's the day that they have to, you know, have sex and might get pregnant while they still have the bodies of children. So they're not ready for childbirth. And so maternal health challenges, including maternal death, are much higher in that in that age group. Um, these girls are much more likely to become the victims of violence. and And so there's a whole Uh, the, the consequences go far beyond just, you know, like, oh, this is a girl ending up in a marriage. In fact, you know, we have these famous sustainable development goals, and eight out of the 17 sustainable development goals are directly or indirectly related to child marriage. So if you ever want to make sure that you get every girl into school, you have to work on ending child marriage. If you want to reduce Child mortality, or if you want to reduce maternal mortality, again, it makes sense to think about how how to bring child marriage into the into the equation. And so we we felt like, look, if this problem is so big, and if the consequences, including for eradicating poverty, are so so enormous, um, let's try to. That's what the elders then decided. Let's try to get this issue on the global agenda and give it the visibility that it actually deserves. And of course, working with with these amazing individuals like Kofi Annan, like Archbishop Desmond Tutu, like like and Michelle, like Ilabad, they they could do this in a way that that nobody could say, "Hey, this is none of your business." You know, you're foreigners, but no, this was happening in their own countries, and so they really helped to to give the the issue, I think, the visibility that it that it deserves.
2: Yeah, I I want to build off that a bit. I you know, where we find ourselves at this really interesting moment in the first 25 years of the 21st century where sort of east and west are are beginning to balkanize you know and there's a certain authoritarian who's causing horrific suffering in ukraine right now but i i can imagine some of these more traditional societies these authoritarian leaders or others saying to the west kind of hey west keep your Western, modern values off of our traditional cultural values. This is for us to determine. And, I mean, how do you, how do you address that? How do you speak to that, well, this kind of divide that we, we find ourselves in increasingly?
0: I mean, we have to look at why child marriage happens. And the reasons why it happens vary per, per place. In some cases, people do it just because they don't know any better. They've done it generation after generation. In some cases, people do it because marrying a daughter off means one less mouth to feed. And if you're poor, that can make a difference then for the children who who remain in the family. In some cases, this is done because of the fears that a girl will get pregnant before marriage and might thereby, you know, dishonor herself or her family. Um, It's sometimes done because there are no alternatives, like, like education. It always happens because of gender inequality, the fact that girls are considered less than boys and the number of times that I've heard people say like, oh, girls are a burden. You need to get rid of them as soon as you can. It's just it's horrendous. But in the end, I believe that parents do not want to harm their children. Parents do this because they might not see alternatives, either because they're not familiar with alternatives or because these alternatives are, are not available. And what we see all over the world, because there's now a whole lot more work going on in this, in this field, is that people from the countries where you have high rates of marriage actually want to change this. There are smaller and bigger local NGOs all over the world that are working to end child marriage. So, of course, you're right. You cannot impose this from the outside. But what we see is that when you empower people in the countries where child marriage is very high, and that's in sub-Saharan Africa... In South Asia, but also in Latin America, this is happening. When you empower people from those countries and ask them, what do you want to do? They basically want to create that kind of change. So, so it is a lot of it is there's a lot of talk nowadays about the decolonialization of aid. The idea that, you know, indeed, we shouldn't come in from whether it is New York or London or, or Berlin and tell people what to do. You need to empower the people on the ground whose lives are concerned about the kind of change that you want to make. And so everything that we are trying to do, we can talk a bit more about it, to end child marriage is all related to, to this idea of like you empower the people, whether it's in Zambia or it is in, in Nepal or whether it is in, in you know, the Dominican Republic, you empower those people to do what they think is is right. And we see that these projects make a difference. You see then that communities decide that they no longer want to marry their daughters at a young age because they realize that actually what seems to be the right thing to do or what they thought was the right thing to do is actually harmful. Not just for the girls, but also for for the communities.
2: Yeah, I, I want to get inside some of the some very specific interventions that, that that you might recommend. You know, and I also want to talk more about VOW and what you're doing in terms of some of the branding and cross branding work that, that you you do there. But but one one particular way maybe to come into this is that you know at at in, in recent days we hear more and more framing of these issues within the context of a polycrisis. Meaning, mm-hmm. how, how do how do what are we experiencing in the 21st century where, there's a, where's there, where there is this kind of compounding effect of a ver, variety of crises? So if you take um, sort of a global recession, the climate crisis, and food insecurity, and you see those compounded together, what are the implications of that? And I can imagine that as you think about the climate crisis, you know, a global recession and food insecurity, that actually increases the vulnerability of uh, girls to early marriage. And w- so what, what are your thoughts about that?
0: So we have seen in the last decade, with more attention to the issue of child marriage, with more money going to the issue of child marriage, uh, not enough, but you know, more, that, that there is a trend in terms of the, the, the percentage is going down. And so where a decade ago, about one out of every four girls in the world would get married before the age of 18, that's now one out of every five. And that's, of course, fantastic news because that means that an issue that, that is, you know, a complex issue, there isn't an, an easy solution. It's not like here, you know, here's the, the, the pill you take or the, the injection you get and then everything will be fine. We know that progress can be made. Um, we need to, however, accelerate that. And we need to partially accelerate that because some of the countries that have the highest rates of child marriage is also where you have big demographic growth. So the worst in the world is Niger. Three out of every four girls are married by the age of 18. Niger is also the place where women on average have slightly more than seven children. Now you can imagine that if you could keep girls out of marriage up to the age of 18, that probably means that they will have at least two or three children less in their lifetime, which will have an enormous impact on on demographic growth in in Niger. And so that is one thing that is a kind of challenge that we really need to tackle if we want to get to this world where there is no more child marriage. But the other thing is, like you're saying, Randy, is the the poly crisis, um, which is a term I hadn't heard until a few weeks ago, and I find it an an intriguing term. Um, We've been in, in the child marriage movement, we have been, or the ending child marriage movement, we've been talking about the four C's that are basically um, challenging us. One is COVID, um, you know, with schools being closed, girls staying at home, you know, all kinds of consequences because of that. Basically, we've seen an increase in child marriages, and they think that because of COVID, we will have in the coming years about 10 million extra child marriages. Secondly, we have conflict. And and that relates, especially when you look now at the situation, you know, in Ukraine, uh, food prices globally have gone up, which means that for the poorest families all over the world, it is hard to feed the whole family, which then increases the pressures of marrying young daughters off. Um, Thirdly, there's the climate crisis. And um, as as you probably know, once again, you know, when, when things get tough, it's the girls and the women who are the first victims. And we see, therefore, you know, with the consequences of, of what is happening with natural disasters, climate crisis, the child marriages go up. You know, for example, in Bangladesh, when the floods come, we always see a peak in in child marriage rates because people are afraid that their house might be washed away. And, and therefore, you know, it's safer to marry your daughter off when you're still of a certain standing, then once you, your house has been, <laughs> is no longer there and you, you're considered poor. Um, and the fourth C is uh, conservatism. And, um, I mean, you know what that is doing to, to the rights of girls and women. Um, so, yes, the, we, we, we are, you know, we have, a, we have a bit of a battle ahead. But, but my strong belief is that the fact that, that not everything is easy doesn't mean that we can say we'll give up. To the contrary, I mean we know that every girl who you keep in school will actually in her lifetime, each year of extraditional schooling, she'll earn ten to fifteen percent more. And we also know that that girls and women who earn a salary invest that in their families and thereby help to lift their children, their husbands. Their families out of poverty, um, and so so it makes sense to to do this work. And I mean, I know it sounds like a big thing—twelve million girls that we that we need to reach. Um, but first of all, these amazing girls that I meet—you know—when you hear their stories about, like, I was at a risk of getting married, but I convinced my parents that I should stay in school for a few more years. And now I am actually earning a living and I can afford, you know, the medical bills of my of my parents. And these girls are proud and they and, you know, their parents realize that these were the right choices. And every life, every girl who we can keep in school and for whom we can make sure that she doesn't end up in, in an early marriage, that's that's a life one, so to say. And, and I'm convinced that we can get to a kind of tipping point where, you know, at some point, you have so many girls who are not getting married that we that we go over to from that kind of like, of course, in this community, our daughters get married by the age of, let's say, 14, to, of course, we're not going to marry our daughters by the age of 14.
2: Amazing. And it it seems that kind of a superpower in that mix is education in 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 many ways. And 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 just as an aside, I. I I had this most extraordinary experience yesterday. We, we met yesterday afternoon to catch up, and uh, a taxi cab driver picked me up, and I was talking to the ca- taxi cab driver, he was a young Afghani man, and, and he said, you know, you're, you're actually the first person I've given a ride since I just left the federal building for my citizenship induction ceremony. And uh, which almost made me cry that I got to be his first ride, for him becoming a citizen in the U.S. And we engaged in this conversation about his experience in Afghanistan, and he had worked for USAID and was able to come out and uh, during that week of invac- uh, the evacuation in, in August of uh, 2021. But he said to me, he said, "You know, my I have three sisters, two are doctors, one's a lawyer," and he said under this current government, they would never be allowed to go to school. And he said, the difference for my three sisters to be able to go to school is the difference between night and day. And it just seems like education is this superpower that really opens up opportunities. And and I'm sure this is true with mitigating child marriage.
0: Absolutely. And we know that the countries where you have seen deep, Sorry, we know that the countries where we've seen steep declines in rates of child marriage are countries where governments have kind of put their weight behind the idea of girls' education. So it is definitely a superpower, um, but it is not always enough. And and so the kind of projects that that we see that work locally, whether it is in Bihar in northern India, or whether it is in in Mozambique, or whether it is in in Senegal. Um, they, they vary a little bit. Like sometimes it is indeed making sure that, that, for example, parents have the money to afford the school uniforms or, you know, the, the books and pens that are necessary for girls to go to school. Uh, sometimes, I mean, I, I was in Nepal f- recently and a lot of the work that, that we're supporting there actually um, centers around girls' clubs where girls come together after school and they learn about their rights and they learn that they that they have agency and they they build friendships and they learn all kinds of life skills, including about sexual reproductive health and, and how you can avoid pregnancy. And they learn, uh, you know, sometimes kind of job skills and, and you know, earning earning small amounts of, of money, uh, sewing or what have you. And and some of these talking to these girls that, that has been transformational for them. If only, for example, they have created bonds. I mean, we, we find it completely normal that girls have, you know, peers and friends and whatever. But in, in many of these places, girls are, once they, you know, they become, uh, reach the adolescent age, they're not longer allowed to leave school, of uh, home. And so they don't have those kinds of friendships. And here we met then these girls who, who, because of these projects, have made these bonds. And then when they find out that one of their friends might be married off, they all collectively go to the to the house of the parents and say, look, this is actually not a good thing to do. And so they help to convince parents to stay out of marriage. We've seen in other places that what works is to get the the elders of the, the community, whether that is religious leaders or local traditional leaders or the teachers, the, the fathers, to basically come together and have a dialogue, you know, week after week after week, talking about, like, why is our community so poor? What could we do to change it? And they come to realise that this practice of child marriage is actually one of the things that is holding their community back, and so they decide to change it. And, for example, in Senegal, there is a programme where 8,000 communities have decided to stop cutting their girls' female genital mutilation and to stop marrying their girls at a young age. Now, that's, of course, amazing, and that, that creates a kind of, you know, a movement that that is going to have, hopefully, for all the girls in Senegal, mean that the child marriage is going to end there. So so what we know is that, yes, education is a critical part of the solution, but sometimes, you know, other things are needed locally as well. And this goes back to that question of, like, how do you then decide what needs to be supported And much of this work cannot be determined by United Nations agencies or by big international NGOs. You really need to make sure that local organizations who know what's happening in their community, why are girls being married? Is it because of poverty? Is it because of lack of education? Is it because of, of this issue of tradition? What is the reason? People who understand what is happening in the community, what is needed to change it, and who holds the power of change, those are the people you need to empower. And what we see is that it doesn't cost a whole lot of money. I mean, a lot of the programs that, that are being supported by Vow for Girls, which we will be talking about, the annual budget is around forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. Now, I'm not saying that there's no money, but that's not a lot. You know, if you think about how you then get an entire community to basically keep girls out of marriage and in school, if I, if I put it very simple.
2: Well, that's right, and I think if you look at the, some of the... Uh criteria under the Human Development Index, just this investment in girls, quite frankly, is extraordinary in terms of Human Development Index and, and the results of that. And, you know, I, I think it would be helpful, actually, just to talk about Vau and what Vau is trying to do and really some of the unique interventions that Vau is, is um, leveraging to be able to bring greater awareness to uh, ending child marriage.
0: Yeah. So so what happened is at some point um, we realized that That change requires empowering local change makers, local organizations, give them the resources, the money they need in order to create the kind of change that i that I was describing and um, and so we saw an, an a big demand from local organizations uh for for funding, but they don 't know how to how to get to you know people in the so-called wealthy West, let's put it that way, um, and and get that money. And at the same time, I realized that whenever I or other people would talk about child marriage um, in in audiences like this one, people would say, look, this is horrendous. I, I mean, I can't imagine how terrible this must be. You know, I have daughters and I couldn't imagine that this would happen to them. And so often people would say, what can I do? So we felt there's a a willingness to support, there's a a supply of potential funding, there is an enormous need for funding. What if we could match those two? And and at that time, I happened to go to the wedding of, of friends of mine and I had this moment, which I guess many of you will recognize, where it's a week before the wedding and you get a panic, not only what will I wear, but also what should I buy them as a present? And so I went to the wedding website of my friends and it said, look, either buy from this wedding registry list at you know a Bloomingdale's or what have you, or give to this good cause. And that was a light bulb moment. I thought, wait, what if we could make sure that when people... Under happy circumstances, celebrate love, whether it is an anniversary, whether it is a wedding, whether it is, you know, a second wedding, <laughs> whether it is, you know, people celebrating like Archbishop Desmond Tutu celebrated at some point 60 years of marriage. What if people who under, under happy circumstances celebrate love help to make sure that girls elsewhere in the world can also choose love on their own terms? And so that's where the idea of vow for girls, like to take a vow, that's what the, what the name comes from. And so basically we're trying to work with, um, and we look then into the wedding industry. I mean, everybody sits safely. The wedding industry globally is $400 billion a year. In the United States alone is $100 billion a year. Now, if we can get a tiny bit of that money... And I'm not asking for much. I only want 0.05%. If we get only 0.05% of that money, that would mean $50 million every year going to projects on the ground in Africa, in Asia and Latin America. Small grants, 20000 here, 50000 there. That money would go there and that would really help to tackle this, this child marriage crisis. And so Vow for Girls is basically an, an opportunity for everybody who wants to contribute to this, to this effort to create a world where girls can be girls and not brides, um, to make sure that that world gets created by contributing, whether it's small amounts, whether it's bigger amounts. And we do that by, there's, there are products that people can buy and then a percentage goes to, to Vow for Girls. Um, as I said, people can, can celebrate uh, happy moments. We were very, uh, very honoured last summer when, when an, uh, a fellow citizen of yours from, from the Bay Area, um, Cheryl Sandberg, she, she got married and she and her husband, Tom, decided to uh, ask all their wedding guests to, to give to Vau. Um, and also she and her husband made a donation. So that was wonderful. And so we hope that will inspire others. But so we're, we're trying to basically make sure that, uh, that, make it possible for everybody to contribute to, do, to this cause.
2: Well, and then you sit sort of in this really, oh, thank you, please. Yes. <laughs> Actually, having been the father of two children that got married, I'm not surprised it's a $400 billion uh, industry. So not shocked whatsoever by that. <laughs> but, uh, but you sit at this really unique intersection, I think. It's, it's not as if you're feeding this extraordinary large organization as much as you have contacts around the world. Of community-based organizations in regions and countries and cities, literally around the world, that are doing work in, on uh, you know in this space, and you've kind of nurtured. My impression is you've nurtured an extraordinary network of organizations that are engaged in that.
0: Yeah, we're basically trying it, trying to make it possible for for everybody to contribute and then for for people all over the world to actually do the work. So. It feels a bit like Vow for Girls is like a kind of an, a facilitator, a backbone organisation, um, making it possible for everybody to, to, to contribute to, to change. And this is, you know, it, well, it goes back, and, and you might find this interesting, it goes back to to one of the first trips I made around ending child marriage, because the elders at some point travelled to Ethiopia to, to, you know, learn more about child marriage and, and work on, raise awareness... And and I did a preparatory trip to northern northern Ethiopia. And one of the interesting things I learned there was... um, Because many people think, like, oh, child marriage, that must be in the Middle East and that must be, you know, something uh, Islamic. And, uh, And again, you know, prejudice has never served people right. Because, first of all, the reality is that child marriage happens across all religions, but there's not one holy book that says, hey, marry your kids before the age of 18, just to be very clear. Um, but also, for example, in Ethiopia, the South is, is Islamic and child marriage rates there are about fifteen 1, 5%. The North is, is Orthodox Christian and child marriage rates there are about 80%, 80%. Um, anyway, we went to the North and we met um, a group of, of married girls. And so I asked the girl who I seated next to, like, how old were you when you got married? And the girl said, I don't really know because... I don't know when I was born. I don't have a birth certificate. But I must have been married off when I was between five and seven years old. And when I heard that, I, I you know, I, I I mean, I still i am so shocked. My daughters at the time were five and six years old. And I realized if they had been born there rather than to me, this might have been their future. And this goes back to the story I told you about how I, how I got engaged in, the, uh, committed to do this kind of work when I was young, because i got this feeling that this is wrong. Geography should not define destiny. Mm. Everybody in the world deserves equal opportunity. And if I then think about all these girls that I've met in the last years and the girls who who ended up, you know, being able to continue to go to school. I mean, really feisty girls who, you know, got upset that they got married and didn't want their younger sisters to, this to happen to their younger sisters. So, like, for example, in Zambia, there were these two girls that ended up taking their cases to, to the, the highest court of Zambia and they won the case. And that's helping, not Zambia, Zimbabwe, sorry. That's helping to, you know, change what's happening in Zimbabwe. You see all these things and you, you realize change is really possible. And that that makes me incredibly excited. The only thing is, as I was saying, we need to accelerate. We need to accelerate because, you know, the, the, the demographic wind is as against us, the poli crisis, that yeah. word, the poly- is against, you know. The, um, and so we, we, we need to just do more.
2: I, I, I kind of want to return back to I'm, I'm still relishing my fifteen minute taxi ride yesterday with <laughs> the, uh, this new American citizen from Afghanistan. And what I also found really unique about that, as I was reflecting on that later, is that all too often we kind of think, okay, you know, this is a, you know, we sort of categorize this and say, well, this, you know, may not have anything to do with men. You know, women in leadership should 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 take this this and what was unique about that conversation with this young man is that he really spoke to to say, you know, we need men in Afghanistan to be standing up and speaking about this. And, you know, he's a young man, you know, and he's and I asked him, I said, well, what do you think about the future? And he said, things are changing. He said the next generation and the next generation of men in this country will stand up for what is right. And so I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts about that. You know, that this this isn't the domain for just women in leadership. This is certainly the domain for men, really, to be very outspoken around the principles and the morality of this.
0: I, I completely agree. We can never achieve gender equality, and whether that is around issues of child marriage or whether it's around issues of equal play or, or you know, how people get recruited or all over the world. We cannot get that by just giving more, more power to, to women. I mean, men are part of, of, of the solution. Uh, and I've seen that in the child marriage work. I remember, for example, going to Bihar in India, where there were these, these young men, I mean, adolescent boys, who had figured out that child marriage wasn't the right thing and that it wasn't fair that their sisters were being married off. And they realized the power of, of again, of keeping girls in school and that that makes, you know, also for happier marriages. Um, And so these boys had been collecting all these signatures from people in the community. And so when we went there with the elders, um, they they gave us these these handwritten uh, uh, booklets and they had gathered something like 8000 signatures only from boys and men in the community. People who had signed up saying, yeah, child marriage is not the right thing to do. And so they asked the elders then, can you please, you're going to meet the, the I can't remember what his formal title is, but the, the head of Bihar, the, the governor of Bihar, can you please give him these 7,000 signatures and let him see that child marriage in Bihar needs to change and that we men and boys believe that this is important. And this is the kind of, of work again that who would have come up with the idea that that was going to work in that community? But of course that's transformative. And once, once you then get, you get men to think differently about, about women, once the norms around the social norms around what we think is normal changes, this kind of, of course, girls should not get married Mm -hmm. as opposed to, of course, they should get married. That is change that lasts forever. And that's why I'm, Actually quite hopeful that that if we can get to that tipping point of of making sure that that girls don 't get married any longer as children, that will never go back that will then that problem will be solved forever, which is why, even though it, it looks like an, an, you know a an, an daunting task i 'm actually very hopeful that we will be able to do that in one generation
2: oh that 's very exciting I, we, I, I see we have some questions coming in here and and i, I actually I want you to build on this question of hopefulness, yeah. and I try to just for my own interest i've been trying to ask people more and more what what kind of makes you hopeful at, at, at a sort of a global level and and in some ways, coming out of um, three year pandemic, um, I, you know I often feel like i these the pandemic years were dog years you know i just i i can almost not remember what life was like in some ways before the pandemic and um i also find myself really craving to be hopeful for what the future looks like so y- y- you operate at a level globally where i think you you have an opportunity to see you know some challenging moments but also some i th- I, I hope <laughs> some hopeful moments for us and certainly with, with regard to child marriage, but even across the whole human rights spectrum of, of challenges that we should be facing. So I'm, I'm going to ask you what, <laughs> what,
0: what makes helps you to be
2: hopeful? Yeah.
0: Well, it is, I think, quite, quite easy when you, you know, look at the newspaper, whether you do that in a hard copy or online, to see a lot of stories that make you think, ooh, there's so many challenges in the world. And, and yes, there are. But what makes, what keeps me hopeful and makes me hopeful is, is uh, the fact that, that there are so many people in the world who want to do what's right. There are so many people who have enormously big hearts and there are so many change makers out there. I think sometimes our whole concept of how you make change happen is, is a little old and that we think, you know, it has to be top down. And one of the things that, that I think we're showing with this movement to end child marriage is that this is, this is not a movement with one or a few leaders. This is also not a movement that's leaderless. This is a leaderful movement. And the leaders are from people like the elders, individual elders, who really, of course, are high-profile individuals and have done a lot to put this issue on the global agenda and to keep it there. But I think of the girls in Zimbabwe who went to the court. I think of those boys in in India who collected the signatures. I think of the amazing uh, people who I met uh, in Nepal a few weeks ago. Um, who, who are doing day in, this out, this work, where they convince entire communities that, that child marriage, you know, is not a good thing to do. I think of these, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people who are out there who are actually trying to do the right thing and who are helping to make real change happen and thereby transform the lives of girls, girls who might have had very few, little opportunity and now now ha- can have bright futures. And so that really keeps me hopeful and it also always thinks I think then of archbishop desmond Tutu, who was the chair of the elders at the time and i did several trips with him but he would always say uh, i'm a prisoner of hope and i and i definitely beautiful. feel that that i am a prisoner of hope
2: beautiful 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 well we have some we have some really great and challenging questions here mabel yeah. and and the first one that i want to cue up is, is sort of near and dear to my heart because I, I was at once the father of a of a girl who was eighteen, so I love this question. Mm-hmm. And the question is, why is eighteen an acceptable age for girls to marry?
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> when we started the work around child marriage, there was the question of like, what what is the what is the age? And uh, the reason why why we're um, advocating for eighteen as the minimum age of marriage is is. In a way, very simple. First of all, the Convention of the Rights of the Child is the convention that has signed by every country in the world except for one, Um, and that is very, very clear about the fact that a child is anybody under the age of 18. And so, when the elders debated this, it was actually Mary Robinson, who, as you know, has a tremendous record in in human rights. She said, "Look, this is very clear. 18—that's the age." Uh, and any girl who's 17 and is really keen to get married, well, let her wait a few months. Um, so, <laughs> Thank you, man. Or a boy, for that matter. Um, the, the other thing is that actually child marriage rates have been measured for a very long time uh, through these what they call DHS uh, surveys, uh, where they, you know, a lot of statistics are, are measured in countries all over the world. And the two, the two things that have been measured for many decades are girls married by the age of 15 and girls married by the age of 18. And so also, therefore, you know, using 18 is also practically very helpful because we can just keep track of, of what is happening over, over the decades.
2: So another question here, I, I, interesting. I, the question is, I'm struck by your language that, quote, no girl is ever a bride, end quote. Can you say say more about that for contexts where people do make their own choices about marriage? Is the term, quote, bride problematic? And how should we, what word should we be using or framing in that that use?
0: So the idea of no girl should ever be a bride is like a girl, i.e. somebody under the age of 18. So, and here again, the thought is like girls, you know, only should get married once they're beyond 18. The word bride is obviously interesting in that when we think about marriage and when we think about brides and, and all those those words, we we think about happy things. What is sometimes hard to imagine is that uh, that child brides in those countries it's nothing happy. I mean, there are in, in most cases no happy ceremonies. There is, there's in many cases there's fear. You know, girls leaving their parental home to go live in many cases, with a man who is a bit older than they are, uh, who they've, in many cases, never met. They go off. In some cases, they end up being the de facto slaves for their in-laws. I mean, these, these are... And so, so, for example, we therefore we, we also never want to... I mean, these are very unhappy circumstances, basically. Um, and so we, we, we try to be very careful with the language we use. We try to be incredibly careful with the images we use. Because what, in the end, we want to get across is that what we're after is is girls being able to choose their own futures. And it's the marriage, the child marriage, that is the impediment. But what the goal is, I mean, this is not going to be a success if every girl in the world stays out of marriage, but then is forced to get married at age 18 plus one day. What we're really after is making sure that every girl anywhere in the world, wherever she is born, rich, poor, gets the opportunities that I got, that your daughter got, and that all your children get. Or that the young people here in the audience, all the opportunities you have to to study. And that's what this is really about.
2: Another question is: to, to what extent are are you through VOW able to support through VOW um, uh, issues around promoting birth control and educating girls and families on maternal health? And is that something that VOW addresses?
0: Absolutely. There's a there is an enormous taboo around sexuality in in Africa, in Asia, but also here in the United States and in Europe. And anybody um, who has tried to you know. Talk to their own children about about sex. knows how hard it is. I mean, I have two teenage girls, and um, you know, it's that's not easy to talk about it. Not because it can get awkward and what have you. I mean, you'll you'll know this. <laughs> 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 but um, but what we see is therefore, and and so in societies that are more traditional, maybe that becomes even harder. But these are issues that cannot be ignored because too often have I met girls. I mean, I remember a girl with we were in Zambia with Archbishop Tutu and we met this girl and she said, um, yeah, I was one of the best students at my school, but then, you know, the boys in the village started playing with me. I had never heard about sex. I had never, I didn't know nothing about how you get pregnant, but I found myself pregnant. I had to leave school and I'm now, you know, living with my baby and my, and my husband has abandoned me and and our, our child. Now, Of course, she wished that this girl had had an opportunity to learn about about sex and then hopefully she could have, you know, prevented pregnancy. There's also, I mean, I remember meeting this this place where they were doing sex education. It was in Indonesia. But um, there was such a taboo around the issue that they taught the girls they should not get pregnant. And then I met the girls and I said, oh, this is wonderful. You're getting sex education. What did you learn? Yeah, we shouldn't get pregnant. And then I said, so how do you get pregnant? And I had forgotten to teach them how you get pregnant because there was too much of a taboo around that. And then I met girls, you know, who actually had learned all these things. But they then, this girl, she, she knew that there was a boy, a man, I don't know, young man preying on her sexually. And so she went to the clinic and she said, look, I know that this boy might actually molest me sexually. Can I please get contraceptives? And she gets yelled at because she's underage and she shouldn't be thinking about sex. Well, do you think that was going to help her? You know, not... so. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done around, around the issue of sexuality, of family planning. But we also, again, I mean, I'm sharing some, some sad stories, but then again, we also know that when girls get educated about, about sex, and, and together with boys, I mean, we've seen sometimes that happens separately, sometimes it happens, you know, boys and girls together, and when they have access to contraceptives, they can, they can thereby make sure that they don't get pregnant, you know, at, an, at a too young age or, or with the, the boys or the men with whom they don't want to spend the rest of their lives. So it's a very important issue. And it's not easy, but again, the fact that something isn't easy doesn't mean that we shouldn't tackle it. And again, it can't then be me or any of you walking into the community. It has to be trusted locals who know where the sensitivities are and who know how you, how you can actually do these kinds of reproductive health
2: lessons Uh, an additional question here we had is that at the beginning of our talk today you framed up the relationship between uh, girl marriage and female genital mutilation and one of the questions is do those go hand in hand are you seeing that evidence in the field and is there any evidence that female genital mutilation is decreasing uh, in in the same ways that you, you you know you saw girl marriage go from one out of four to one out of five, uh, do do you have any insights there?
0: So female genital mutilation. If, if I remember correctly, it happens to, I think, about 2 million girls every year. So the numbers are quite different. And that is partially because female genital mutilation, contrary to child marriage, child marriage happens all over the world. Female genital mutilation happens, I believe, in around 30 countries primarily. So it's, it's a smaller geographical area. There, there isn't always a link. I mean, they're obviously both harmful practices. Both need to end, but only in, in a few countries are they directly related in a place like so you can have in, in for example, in Senegal, you can have kind of girls who are who have been cut, but not necessarily become child brides, or you have child brides who have not been cut. There are only a few places where uh, where actually the two are connected. And one is among the uh, in, in Kenya where when a girl gets her, her first period, that's the moment when she gets cut. And then once she has been cut, she starts wearing different beads. And then people know, like, oh, this is now, you know, she's a young woman. She has been cut. Now she's ready for marriage. And then they normally get married fairly shortly thereafter. So in that case, if you want to end uh, child marriage, you need to work on the issue of cutting as well. And, um, but in other places, you know, even though the two are not directly linked... When you work around social norm change, the sensitization, you know, of, of parents and, and village elders about what is good for girls and not good for girls, you can work on both issues at the same time, even though they, they are not directly connected.
2: We were talking yesterday and you were explaining to me some of the interesting opportunities in front of VOW. and I'm just curious as we move towards having to wrap up our conversation, sort of what what's next for VOW, you know, and... What are the, what are some of the opportunities that Vow has in front of it, and and something that we should know about uh, among ourselves?
0: Well, so we we launched Vow for girls shortly before the, the COVID pandemic, and so as you can imagine, that was a bit of a hard time to start <laughs> an organization that is all around celebrations and and weddings, and um, so we um, we we um, you know are happy that the pandemic is over for many reasons, but including this. And, and we're very happy to see that, you know, there's this enormous wedding boom now. And, and so, and what we're also excited about is that uh, VAU is currently supporting about 200 projects in, uh, in six countries. And we see that the results, the first results of these projects are really, you know, very promising. Um, and and it is just, it is so enormously exciting when you see that that small grants make an enormous difference for an entire community and how then parents start telling you proudly like we now know that this is not good we are now you know obeying to the law and we will not marry our daughters at a young age and and take pride in this and understand that this is good not just for the girls but for the community as a whole so uh, so what's for VAU? Well, VAU is the kind of organization that will only be as good as, as everybody, you know, <laughs> as we collectively make it. Um, and, and this is a little bit, it, it brings me back to thinking about Archbishop Tutu, because um, he would, um, I, I used to call him Arch, and, and Arch would say often... Um, when you want big change to happen, and obviously wanting to end child marriage means that we want big change to happen. He said, when you want big change to happen, you need an enormous wave of change. And he said, never forget that a big wave is composed of millions of drops of water. And you can be one, 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 and you can be one of those drops, and I am one of those drops, and you can be one of those drops. And I love that because I really believe that's the way that change happens. It goes back to that idea of, you know, leader full move, of change. And so, and so What sh- the potential vow basically depends on how many millions of drops of water will join this wave of change. And um, I mean, as I said, um, uh, we would love to mobilize just a tiny bit of that enormous wedding market and anything that comes with it. Everybody has an opportunity to help. So I invite you to join that wave.
2: Well, listen, we just have uh, a few more uh, minutes left here. And um and in real time, I'm reading this question. Uh, mm-hmm. And here's the question there's a police crackdown on underage marriage happening in India. That's been controversial. What, what is going on, Mabel?
0: So India, for more than 100 years, has had a law which says 18 is the minimum age of marriage. At the same time, uh, the child marriage rates used to be around 50%, one out of every two girls getting married before 18. That's now decreased to 27%. But because India is a big country, an enormous population, the absolute numbers are still very, very high. In one of the states in India, I believe it's Assam, a few weeks ago, uh, the authorities decided to, to arrest about 2,000 men who had married girls uh, under the age of 18 saying, look, this is against the law. Yes, they broke the law. But by putting these men in in prison, that doesn't necessarily, you know, solve the problem. And what happened in that particular case, from from what I know about it, is the the wives and, and their children actually went protesting and said, look... We're poor families. If our husbands are in prison, they can't, they can't earn, you know, they can't put bread on the table, rice on the table for us. So, so they need to be de- liberated. And we know that criminalization doesn't necessarily solve the, the problem. I mean, you, you, in the end, what you need is actually the kind of change. You need to make sure there are alternatives for girls. You need to make sure that people realize that this is harmful. And, and if you criminalize it, what we have seen in most places is you drive the practice underground which is again not a solution to the contrary it makes vulnerable girls even more at risk of of abuse and 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 other you know other things that are bad for them um so that's as far as i what i understand is happening in part of india right now um and i actually don't know whether these men have been liberated i'll, I'll check that later
2: okay okay well listen this is the the, the, the last question of the day and and I think it's a perfect one to end on. Uh, this individual wrote, if we choose to give to a, a wedding gift of vow uh, to a couple unaware of the org and its work, does such a donation on their behalf come with any, anything that explains vow? And just walk us through the mechanics of how to give, you know, w- what you're giving and how people become aware of vow.
0: OK, so th- there is a website vowforgirls.org, which should explain all of this in ways that make it really, really, really really simple. It helps to identify where you can buy products of which then a part of the proceeds will actually go to vow. Um, It helps to uh, also explain like what you can do if you want to gift to, you know, a donation to vow to a couple, how to make sure that that gets acknowledged. Uh, It explains uh, what you can do if you decide to vow your own wedding or another celebration how to do that um and, and i'm i'm not an expert in in this you know in this field but uh we have a wonderful team here in the united states that that makes sure that all this can be done in a way that is as painless as as you you know as possible for all of you actually becomes really easy but also that shows them where the money goes so there is an enormous amount of information about the kind of stories around girls who have have benefited from from the generous donations of of people like yourselves um and and helps to to basically show why why this is a wonderful way of of celebrating and it's interesting we see that um i mean the, the generation z and the millennials they they are much more i think inclined uh than previous generations to kind of make a good cause part of celebrations and that's obviously something that we warmly welcome um but if, for whatever reason, you feel uh, that, that it is not clear enough on the website, then um, our friends at the Commonwealth Club know where to find me and my colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> and we will, we will help you make sure that this well, works out.
2: Well, listen, thank you, Princess Mabel Van Orange, for joining us today. And, and I think it's fair to say the world is truly a better place because of you. And so if you, if you will, let's... Be. Thank you. And I, I, thank you, thank you. I know Mabel and and members of the VOW team will be here afterwards if you'd like to speak to them. And for our online audience, I'd just like to say that if if you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual and in person gatherings possible, please visit CommonwealthClub.org slash events. And uh, thank you, everybody, and have a lovely afternoon. Thank you.
0: Thank you.